Welcome everybody to the Live from the Code Bar podcast recorded from the Code Theme Bar of Fenwood Manor. I'm your guide on this adventure, Rob. On this show, we're going to talk about the as yet unsolved armchair treasure hunt, the Whistle Pig. I know I meant to do this on the last episode, but I had to uh, obviously skip over it so that I could do that special uh, show that we did on the Letters of St. Germain, which still is unsolved despite me and my team trying to solve it very quick. Uh, we've got, we believe, a few of them. We have not got all of them, and uh, we're still working. So as of yet, as of the recording of this, it has not yet been solved, and the proxy has not been found. But back to the whistle pig. This hunt started on February 2nd, which was Groundhog's Day in 2003, when the book, The The Whistle Pig, which was written by Duck Miller, which is not his real name, was released. This book itself is made up of 10 short stories, a 16-line poem, and a couple of maps, and a lot of headaches. But first of all, I want to, as usual, uh, again, start by giving some housekeeping. I want to give a great big thank out, as usual as well, to everyone of you that have downloaded and listened to the first couple of shows. Uh, As of the recording of this, we had reached almost 500 downloads, which is absolutely amazing. So thank you very much, everybody. Um, You've been absolutely amazing with me on this journey, and uh, I wouldn't have been able to do it without you guys. But some special shout outs I do want to give uh, to Nick Spira, my partner in crime, my treasure hunting buddy. Um, But he's the one that did the music for me. So thank you. Robert Brewer, uh, amazing work doing all the artwork to help me out. Uh, He was the uh, author of The Lost Skull, the treasure hunt that me and Nick solved. Uh, Stephen Jenner, my brother, of course, who does all the editing for the podcast. And then last of all, I always want to give a big shout out to Dustin and Deidre Wright, who did help me promote this show on a lot of their uh, podcasts, on a lot of their uh, different websites and, and Facebook pages and everything like that. So thank you very much. Last week, I had the awesome pleasure of being promoted on a awesome YouTube show, Calazars and K-Pro. Uh, they shared a promo for my podcast on their live show. So I want to do a little thing back and, and help them out and share a promo for their awesome show with you all today. Forest Fen's thrill of the chase is over, but the community continues on. Get all the breaking treasure hunt news on Kalazar's YouTube channel. K-Pro and Kalazar's go live twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, 7 p.m. Pacific. Mondays are devoted to the ending of the Forest Fen treasure hunt, and Thursdays are all about the other rides in the treasure hunting amusement park. Chuck us out on Facebook on the Facebook group, Kalazar's and K-Pro's Grand Adventure. Definitely check them out. I know I mentioned them on the last podcast as well. They're absolutely amazing. Talk a lot of great things. Uh, obviously, I'm going to try to get some of them on uh, or be on their show uh, to talk more about Forest Fan when it comes time to do that as a podcast. So there are so many more people that I can mention and thank, uh, but that could be a podcast all on its own. So for now, check out our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages for more shoutouts. Now, onto the show. As I mentioned, The Whistle Pig was written by Duck Miller and it contains 10 short stories, an introduction, a poem, a few basic maps. The book's introduction makes it very clear that this is a treasure hunt that leads to a hidden key somewhere on public property in the United States. The key was hidden before the book's launch, which was on February 2nd, 2003, and as of the recording of this podcast, it has still not been found, though certainly not from lack of trying. And I've definitely included in that bunch. I've tried my harder on this one as well. So I want to do some of my usual background and in this type case, I want to give you a little bit of background on what is a whistle pig. Uh, growing up in Australia, I had no idea what this was. Uh, so whistle pig is another term for a groundhog. So for all of you people listening in parts of the world, such as my family back home in Australia, 
Let me take a moment to talk to you about groundhogs and their famous day. I'm going to start by going all Wikipedia on you guys, so uh, sit back. The groundhog, which is Marmota monax, also known as the woodchuck, is a rodent of the family Scuridae, belonging to the group of large ground squirrels known as marmots. The groundhog is a lowland creature of North America. It is found through much of the eastern United States across Canada and into Alaska. It was first scientist scientifically described by Carl Linus in 1758. The groundhog is also referred to as a chuck, woodchuck, ground pig, whistle pig, whistler, thickwood badger, Canada marmot, monax, munak, weenusk, red monk, land beaver, and among French Canadians in the eastern Canada, syphilux. The name thickwood badger was often given in the northwest to distinguish the animal from the prairie badger. Monax, or Munak, is an Algonquin name for the woodchuck, which meant digger. Young groundhogs may be called chucklings. The groundhog, being a lowland animal, is exceptional among other marmots, such as the yellow-bellied and hoary marmots. They live in rocky and mountainous areas. The groundhog is by far the largest in its ge geographical range, excepting in British Columbia, where, there, where its range may... Uh, but that of the somewhat larger cousin, the hoary marmot. Adults measure from 41.8 to 68.5 centimeters, which is 16.5 to 27 inches in total length, including a tail of nearly 9.5 to 18.7 centimeters, or 3.7 to 7.4 inches. Male groundhogs are average slightly larger than the females, and like all other marmots, they are considerably heavier during autumn when they are engaged in autumn hyper. Hopogia, which I guess is making sure that they stay warm coming the uh, upcoming winter. Then when emerged from hibernation in spring, adult males average year-round weight of about 3.83 kilograms. Groundhogs have four incisor teeth, which grow 1.5 millimeters or 1 16th of an inch per week. Constant usage wears them down again by about that much each week. Unlike the incisors of many other rodents, the incisors of groundhogs are white to ivory white. Groundhogs are well adapted for digging and with short, powerful limbs, curved, thick claws. Uh, they also are good at doing other things as well. Unlike other scurids, the groundhog's tail is comp comparatively shorter, only about one-fourth of its body length. So that's the basic info on a groundhog. So let's move on to see why this rodent gets its very own special day and a really awesome movie about this. Again, we go back to the Wikipedia machine. So Groundhog Day. This is a popular North American tradition observed in the United States and Canada on February 2nd. It derives from the Pennsylvania Dutch superstition that if a groundhog emerging from its burrow on this day sees its shadow due to a clear weather, it will retreat into its den and winter will persist for six more weeks. But if it does not see its shadow because of the cloudiness, spring will arrive early. While the tradition remains popular in modern times, studies have found no consistent correlation between a groundhog seeing its shadow and the subsequent arrival of time of spring-like weather. So take uh, the old groundhog uh, not for exactly what it says. The weather law was brought from German-speaking areas where the badger is the forecasting animal. This appears to be an enhanced version of the law that clear weather on a Christian festival of the Candlemas forbades a prolonged winter. The Groundhog Day ceremony held at Punxsutawney in western Pennsylvania, centering on the semi-mythical groundhog named Punxsutawney Phil, has become the most frequently attended ceremony.
Grunslau lodges in Pennsylvania Dutch country in the southeastern part of the state observe the occasion as well. Other cities in the United States and Canada also have adopted the event. Now, I'm going to go into some of the uh, little bits of pieces here about some of the uh, origins. The Pennsylvania Dutch were immigrants from Germanic-speaking areas of Europe. The Germans already had a tradition of making Candlemas, which is February 2nd, as Badger Day. Where if a badger emerged, founding it to be a sunny day, thereby casting a shadow, it foreboded the prolonging of the winter for four more weeks. So about some English uh, origin stories, there did exist a belief among Roman Catholics in Britain that the hedgehog predicted the length of winter, or so it has been claimed, but without the demonstration of its age, in a publication by the Scotland-born American journalist Thomas C. Macmillan in 1886, and American writer-journalist Samuel Adams Drake's book published in 1900. So there's lots of uh, other things, like in the Gaelic calendar of Ireland, Scotland, the Isle of Man, Brigid's Day, which is February 1st, is a day for predicting the weather, while in Scotland, the animal that heralds spring on this day is a snake, uh, and on the Isle of Man, a large bird. In Ireland, folklorist Kevin Denar records lore of hedgehogs being observed for this omen. In Irish folk tradition, St. Brighid's Day, which is the 1st of February, is the first day of spring, and thus of the farmer's year. To see, he- see a hedgehog was a good weather sign, for the hedgehog comes out of the hole in which he has spent the winter, looks about to judge the weather, and returns to his burrow if a bad weather is going to continue. If he stays out, it means that he knows the mild weather is coming. So here in the United States, observance of Groundhog Day in the United States first occurred in German communities in Pennsylvania, according to known records. Earliest mention of Groundhog Day is February 2nd, 1840, uh, in uh, Morgantown, Pennsylvania. According to his book, uh, this was a Welsh enclave, uh, but they came from good German stock. So the Punxsutawney beginnings. The first reported news of a Groundhog Day observance was arguably made by the Punxsutawney Spirit newspaper of Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. Say that loud uh, three times out fast. Uh, eight, in 1886, it said, Up to the time of going to press, the beast has not seen its shadow. However, it was not until the following year in 1887 that the first groundhog considered official was commemorated there and with a group making a trip to the Gobbler's Knob part of town to consult the groundhog. People have gathered annually at the spot for the event ever since. Uh, groundhog Day celebrations of the 1880s were carried out by the Punks Attorney Elks Lodge. The Lodge members were the geniuses of the Groundhog Club form later, which continues the Groundhog Day tradition to up to today. But the Lodge started out being interested in the groundhog as a game animal for food. It had started to serve groundhog at the Lodge and had been organising a hunting party on each day in the late summer. Uh, either way, the Punxsutawney Groundhog Club, uh, formed in 1899, continued to hunt uh, and the Groundhog Feast, uh, which took place annually in September. So moving forward, of course, into a lot more years, uh, coming up real close now. The groundhog was not named Phil until 1961, possibly as an indirect reference to Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh. Punxsutawney today has the largest groundhog celebration where crowds as large as 40,000 people gather each year. The average draw has been around 2,000 people until 1993, and then that's when the most famous movie came out, Groundhog Day, which is set in the festivities of Punxsutawney, after which attendance at the event rose to nearly 10,000 people. In 2019, the 133rd year of the tradition, the Groundhog was summoned to come out at 7.25am on February 2nd, but did not see its shadow. 
Fans of Punxsutawney Phil waited for arrival and started arriving at 6am. And thanks to a live stream provided by the Visit Pennsylvania, people all around the world got to see the tradition. In 2021, it was the 135th... Sorry, in 2021, it is the 135th... And for the first time, much of the Inner Circle members were required to wear a mask, obviously because of the coronavirus. The Groundhog was summoned, as usual, at 7.25am on February 2nd, and it saw its shadow. So that means that we're going to see some more winter, and that's going into today. <laughs> but it is a nice, beautiful day here in uh, New Jersey today in recording. Okay, so that's pretty much some little bit basics there. We've gone quite a bit onto the Groundhog. So let's go into the actual book itself. That's obviously, I think, what you came to listen to anyway. So what is this book all about, and what do you have to do to find the key? Both of them are great questions, but unfortunately, I do not have the answers for both. Let me start off with what we do know about the book and some of the secrets that have already been deciphered. So let's start off with the different story names inside of the book. The first story is called Black Heart Cherry. Then we have Grandfather's Office, Two Dogs, Full Moon, Winterland, which is spelt as two separate words, For the Record, Cork, 48 States, Sandcastle, Egg Hunt, and The Bow. In the back of the book is a hunting log that is presumably for making notes about the different clues and a pass the pig section, where again a person can enter his name and date with instructions to pass the book around and share the puzzle. So here are some other facts known about the Whistle Pig Treasure Hunt, and these are all from the Mysterious Writings webpage, which was a huge help in my research and on all things of this treasure hunt, and also other treasure hunts related to this, as well as other treasure hunts that I do uh, take part in. Uh, thank you, Jenny, for running such a wonderful and awesome website. So the first thing is, within the pages, searches are told that every word, line, or paragraph could nudge you towards the greater goal, the greater goal being the discovery of the key. What the key actually looks like is unknown. Searches are only told that it is a unique, unique and unmistakable and that it has been hidden somewhere within the borders of the United States on accessible public property. The introduction also adds the value of the key's physical location can only be discovered by searching and prizing the illusions and references embedded within the stories. When reading, you might notice a couple of anomalies within the book, especially in its numbering system. Page number 11 is actually missing. The numbering of pages goes from 10 to 12. 11 is just not there. Then on page number 22, the page number 22, the actual number, is replaced instead with a big X. What does this mean? X marks the spot. Nobody's been able to determine. After the book's introduction, there is an image of an old map with a small circled area. This section of the state of Pennsylvania, this, sorry, this is a section of the state of Pennsylvania and includes the town of, surprise, surprise, Punxsutawney, well known for the celebration of Groundhog's Day, like we just talked about. After the image of the map in the front of the book is a page with only the words underscore year of the underscore. The next page only shows a silhouette of a whistle pig. It has been noticed that many of the years involved in the stories relate to the Chinese year of the pig, which is probably going to be a big clue. Searchers are told to prize the illusions embedded in the stories. It has been noticed that the stories definitely allude to certain events, places, or characters. For instance, the chapter entitled Full Moon seems to allude to the Battle of Gettysburg, while the first chapter, Black Heart, Heart Cherry, seems to allude to horse racing. Uh, many of the other chapters uh, do have other allusions in them as well. Uh, for instance, the one that is 48 States is about an aging rocker that's trying to write his new uh, and latest song in the middle of the desert. 
a um, couple of other things like that. So it's, 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 they're very definitely interesting reads, if nothing else. Each chapter has a small image of a key at its beginning. However, within the stories, there appear images of three smaller keys. These are found on pages 4, 13, and 78, and are positioned between the paragraphs of the stories. There must be a reason for these uh, smaller keys, but what has been, uh, sorry, there must be a reason for these, but what this might be has not currently been found. In the last chapter, The Bow, there is an acrostic code. Now, for those of you, I will mention acrostic later on, uh, probably even do a podcast on it, but the acrostic code uses the first letter or syllable of a word of each line or paragraph or other recurring feature in a text and spells out a word or a message. An acrostic can be used as a mnemonic device to aid memory as retrieval. This was discovered by taking the first uh, letter of in this, this uh, story and taking the first letter of each word in each of the 38 sentences within the chapter revealed the message, bear the cross, leave the center, find the fruit. Again, no one is certain what this means or how it helps in finding the key. Searchers are told that pieces of the puzzle come in many forms. They are also told that without steadfast rules and armed with only vague instructions, you will be forced to open your mind to accept any reference as possible guidance. Okay, so that's some background on the actual story. Uh, obviously, some hints and tips and, and stuff that's already been determined. Uh, again, a lot of this you can get from the different forums and off the web pages and everything like that. So I want to go with uh, some of my own experiences with the whistle pig because this is a, a hunt that I have searched for, uh, me and Nick, and uh, along with others as well. Um, I've been searching this for a couple of years now, actually, and we haven't gotten any further than what I've already talked about up the top. Uh, recently, we were working with an awesome woman who was based just outside of Bolton, Baltimore, and after we discussed numerous clues, we thought we'd uh, actually found some sort of an Edgar Allan Poe connection. Uh, so this uh, awesome lady took several day trips into the city of Baltimore to Edgar Allan Poe's gravesite and explore, explored the area. Didn't find anything. Um, I even personally went boots on the ground to look for the key. Uh, back in 2019, uh, I was contacted by an online treasure hunter from all places, Brisbane, Australia, my home city. Uh, and he had a theory that he thought that the key was here in New Jersey. So on one of my days off, I dropped my kids off at school and I took a little trip south to Mullica Hill. Now, uh, he gave me some specific uh, information. He didn't tell me what his theory was, why he thought it was in Mullica Hill. He just uh, gave me a lot of information about where he wanted me to search. He wanted me to search at the base of a flagpole at the War Memorial. Uh, he'd looked up a lot of information from the uh, Google Maps uh, he said he wanted me to look for anything uh, unique and unmistakable, uh, such as the uh, picture of a groundhog or the, the whistle pig, uh, maybe even the clue itself. Uh, but he just wanted me to check the end caps and, and all that sort of stuff. So uh, I went down on my day off, like I said, and uh, it's about 45 minutes to Mullica Hill from my area, from where I live. So I drove down once. Once I arrived at the location, I searched the entire area for a good hour and a half, searching flower pots, searching the flagpole. Uh, I searched electrical boxes. I searched in trees. Uh, I must have looked a little bit crazy searching this place because it's not a very big place. Uh, it was a little bit of a fun adventure. I didn't find anything, so there was no success. Uh, so I went back to him. I sent him pictures. Um, said I didn't have any success. Uh, he gave me some more information about where he thinks that I should look, 
But as of right now, I'm sorry to say I haven't had a chance to go back and look again yet. Maybe it's there. Who knows? Anyway, that is the end of what I have on Whistlepig. Obviously, this uh, adventure is not going to end because the key has not yet been found. So who knows? We might go on another Boots on the Ground adventure later on and see if I can find it. Instead of a drink on this episode, though, I want to go back to a Pub Grub review. Uh, for this Pub Grub review, I want to uh, share with you a book I recently read uh, called The Code Girls by Lisa Mundy. So Code Girls is a forgotten uh, is the forgotten and untold story of the brave young women of the United States who worked deciphering and breaking the German and Japanese codes during World War II. Now, this is from the website. Recruited from settings as diverse as elite women's colleges and a small southern towns, more than 10,000 young American women served as codebreakers for the U.S. Army and Navy during World War II. Where their brothers, boyfriends, and husbands took up arms, these women, these women went to the nation's capital with sharpened pencils and even sharper minds, taking on highly demanding top-secret work involving complex math and linguistics running early IBM computers and poring over reams of encrypted enemy messages. They worked tirelessly in a pair of overheated makeshift code-breaking centers in Washington, D.C. and Arlington, Virginia from 1942 to 1945. Their achievements were immense. They cracked a crucial Japanese code, which gave the U.S. an accurate advantage in the Battle of Midway and changed the course of the war in the Pacific Theater. They helped create the false communications that caught the Germans flat-footed in in the lead-up to the Normandy invasion, and their careful tracking of Japanese ships and German U-boats saved countless American and British sailors' lives. Through extensive archival research and numerous interviews conducted with the surviving girls, now many of them in their 90s, Mundy has constructed a dazzling narrative that expertly conjures up the war years, the battles abroad, and the uncertainty, that the, the uncertainty and excitement of the home front. Mundy hones in on the lives and labors of several exemplary codebreakers, including Anne Carasetti and Agnes Jushkov, while providing a broader portrait that celebrates the entire cohort of talented women, whose top secret has went without public recognition for nearly 70 years. She expertly weaves the story among the larger events of the war and the daily activities of the codebreakers, anchoring the story to the figures of the figure of Dot Braden, a schoolteacher recruited by the Army, who before arriving at Arlington Hall had scarcely left Virginia. For many of these young women, breaking codes was one of the most thrilling times of their lives. They were engaged in stimulating, truly essential work, enjoying the challenges and opportunities that have never been open to them before, while in many cases they were getting their first taste of the big city life, falling in and out of love amid the excitement and heartbreak of wartime. So uh, this book is absolutely amazing, by the way. I, I read it, uh, uh, only took a couple of days because I couldn't put it down. Uh, there is some amazing information that's on there. Um, and for listeners, if you do read it, you, you might, if you did take part in the uh, virtual treasure hunt that I provided earlier in the, the year, uh, they will surely recognize some important names in the book, like Elizabeth and William Friedman, both buried at Arlington Cemetery. I used their tombstone as a clue uh, for of the hidden bacon cipher on the words "knowledge is power," and when you use that cipher on the words "knowledge is power" on the tombstone, it spells out WFF, which was William's initials. A loving tribute done by Elizabeth after William died. The book is easy to read, so check it out. It's available as a hard copy on Kindle, and you can also listen to it unabridged on Audible. So now I've come to the end of this show. 
for all the information that doesn't make it into the podcast, as well as links and uh, all the source material that I've mentioned, please visit the show notes and don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all with the handle at CodeBarLive. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast and help the podcast grow by giving us a rating and a review, especially on the big one, Apple Podcasts. I'll be back in two weeks with an original show, this time on the real-life lost treasure of King John's Jewels. Until next time, everyone, keep digging.